Hi, welcome to The Reluctant Agilist. My name is Dave Pryor. Today, Richard Chang is here, and we're going to talk about a couple different things. One is his talk that's coming up at the Scrum Gathering in a few weeks, and we're also going to talk about how to prepare for the Scrum Gathering if you're new to that. But mostly, we're going to focus on Richard's topic, and it's all about product ownership. So, Richard, thank you for being here. Thanks, Dave. Happy to be here. So, before we get into the conversation about how to be the perfect product owner, do you want to uh, maybe give a quick kind of rundown of your background and what makes you qualified to even come near this subject? Sure. Yeah. So a lot of my background has been coming up from the technical side, former developer into a tech lead into a director of engineering. So I came up uh, primarily through a tech side, but then at some point I got deep into agile and scrum and, uh, and then was a uh, scrum master at quite a variety of places and, uh, and worked with a lot of product owners. Um, and so I learned a lot of really interesting uh, kind of concepts, saw a lot of great patterns, anti-patterns, especially working with companies like the Motley Fool, fool.com's website. Uh, they did a really good job of product ownership. Some of my clients on the government side, uh, back when I was working with them, USA Jobs, USA Staffing, uh, all of their product owners are, uh, federal, are experts in the, the federal HR system. And so uh, they had a really good sense of it, at least when I was working with them. And so I've really seen some really... Um, great patterns for effective product ownership. Um, and I've also had a chance to work with some organizations where the product ownership was still kind of emerging, where what we saw there was converted project managers or converted technical experts as product owners. And I could see really the struggles that those type of folks had in that role. So it really gave me a good uh, breadth of experience across uh, the healthy patterns and the uh, potential anti-patterns as well. Okay, and you didn't mention what you're doing now. Right now, at this moment? Yeah, well, um, I mean, other than, like, sucking up office space at Excella, what is your gig? Yes. So right now, I lead the training division at Excella. I, I, um, I'm a certified scrum trainer, so I teach a lot of our courses, and I kind of organize our overall training strategies to really help uh, individuals, teams, and organizations really kind of get a great understanding of a lot of these uh, concepts around uh, – uh, agility around effective delivery and around creating better uh, work environments. Okay, cool. Thank you. Um, so I got I got two quick questions before we start talking about your topic. And the first one is just a check in. So I feel like over the past two or three years, I've seen in my classes a, a kind of a flip flop in terms of where it used to be almost like all the CSM classes were full and all the CSPO classes were like a quarter full. Now it's like Half full CSM and completely full CSPO most of the time. Are you seeing something similar to that? Uh, I wouldn't quite say that, but I definitely am seeing greater demand in the CSPO, uh, especially here in my hometown of DC. What uh, I've really been pushing in my hometown of Washington DC, we have like we have a government in place as well as a lot of large companies, and so we have a lot of Scrum relationships where you have. Um, a kind of a, a client vendor, and we've been really pushing that the product ownership should really come from the uh, uh, client side. Um, and so as such, we're really seeing a lot of uh, our, our clients really uh, take greater ownership in that being a product owner and sending their folks to training and uh, giving them the help and tools they need to succeed. Okay. Uh, in fact, there's a great story I was just reading the other day. Right now, it looks like uh, there's a big kind of uh, brouhaha going between uh, Hertz and Accenture, and one of the kind of the pivot uh, elements that I caught out of the big lawsuit and all the articles I read is that you have a situation where um, um, Accenture was essentially playing the uh, the product owner for this Hertz product, and that's something that we uh, 
work with our clients to help them recognize is that if uh, you have vendors designing products for you and you're going to own the intellectual property, then you, the, the client, should provide the product owner. Yeah, I think I, that's awesome. I mean, I've been in this situation where I've had to act as the product owner on behalf of the client, and that creates a lot of conflict in your brain because you kind of have to go native. I mean, if you're the consultant, you have to go native and be supportive of the client, but at the same time, you know that your company's got stuff they want you to do as well. So there's a lot of dissonance there, I think. Yeah, I think having the client as the product, I'm sorry, having the vendor as product owner creates all sorts of problems. One you pointed out, it's a great point, is is a potential conflict of interest, yes. right? I have a couple of choices, one that's better for the client, one that might be better for my organization, but as product owner, getting able to kind of provide the vision, direction, and prioritization of the product as well as accepting work, uh, there are potential conflicts of interest here. That's number one. But number two, there's other problems too. One of the things I've noticed is when we have uh, situations where the client um, is more abstracted away. So let's say we the client hires a vendor to do something for them, and and they even abstract away the product ownership. The problem is that it's a kind of an us and them, where the client views a vendor as a them and say, "You guys build it for me. Let me know when you're done." Right, and when it doesn't work, they blame it on the vendor. Yeah. Whereas when I see the uh, product owner come from the client, um, and the vendor play the uh, the dev team, right? I, I see a much greater sense of we versus us and them, right? Where we are building together, we take joint ownership and joint accountability over success and failure, and it creates a better partnership. Well, you bring up another thing, which I didn't originally think of when we started this conversation, but um, I always encourage the POs in my class to, to get really deeply involved with the senior leadership within the company to make sure that the products are developing are in alignment with company strategy and the vision and roadmap sync up with the company strategy. Yeah. And if I'm from outside, I'm not going to have access probably to senior leadership. And I'm definitely not going to be invited to come in and guide the senior leadership of the company through a visioning exercise. Yeah, I think that's a big problem, and especially in a lot of environments I work with, is that when from the outside, you have very little authority in the organization, yeah. and that kind of creates uh, some potential stumbling blocks as well. And so, um, I know that those are all great points. So the second—oh, go ahead. Oh, also, if you come from outside, the, the fact is that it's potentially possible that you have much more limited depth in terms of the nuances of the uh, environment, of the product, of the customer base. And so your knowledge—there might be a greater knowledge gap— if you're coming from the outside as well. And knowledge gap in terms of, not so much in terms of how to build it, but in terms of what the true product needs are. Yeah. Um, so we may have already answered this next question, but the other thing that I was going to try to ask you about before we got into your topic at the gathering was anti-patterns. So that is a learning objective in the PO courses. And it didn't occur to me until recently that that's a term that a lot of people might not be familiar with. I had somebody bring it up on a podcast that was posted up here. And I've noticed in all my classes that when I have the students check the learning objectives, they don't know what anti-pattern means and they don't know how to apply it to the role of product ownership. So I was wondering if you could kind of talk through your, your understanding of anti-pattern as it relates to product ownership and maybe like one really good example of what that might be. Well, let's just first start by talking about what the words actually mean. So when we say pattern, it's roughly the equivalent of good. Patterns are things that we've seen over time kind of be established as effective type uh, practices or patterns, right? Anti-patterns are roughly equated to bad, meaning that when we see these type of actions happen, the results of these actions tend to be not what we want. So right? bad That'd habits, a, basically. 
Yeah, bad habits. I think that's a good way to put it. Uh, anti-patterns are situations we see kind of repeatedly that end up with results that are undesirable. Okay. Right. So bad habits. Is like, like for it. example, maybe you're on a keto diet and you, you know, late night trip to Taco Bell. Yeah, that would be. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't know. I would never do something. Like Not that, that you would but, do anything like that, but yeah, people. Yeah, someone might. You know, yeah, someone might, and then the keto community would have to shun that person yeah. for breaking keto. So that <laughs> that would be an anti-pattern. Okay. Um, or an anti-pattern would be like where the client outsources the product ownership to the vendor. Yeah. Right. Now, so another anti-pattern that I see. So what happens here is, let's say we do have an, a relationship where we have the client as a product owner and the vendor as the dev team. Yeah. The problem, one of the anti-patterns we see is as a product owner, you start treating your dev team like they report to you, like you own them, like like they're there to make you happy. Right? Yeah, I, I see that quite a bit, especially in like my, one like with my big company clients or my federal clients. And so I have this conversation all the time, especially with like my federal product owners or even my product owners at large companies. I'll uh, go to the product owner and I'll say, hey, you know what I'm observing is you're treating the dev team like they're your vendor, like they report to you, right? And then I'll say, hey, product owner, you have a choice. When you work with your dev team, you have a choice. Would you like your dev team to be there to make you happy? Or would you like the dev team to be there to be honest with you? Pick one. Okay. So, but that's kind of a, I think, a normal, I mean, coming out of, especially coming out of a a waterfall or a more traditional background, that is traditionally the way it worked. Like you would capture all the requirements, throw them over the wall, smack people around until you got what you wanted. Yeah. 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 I mean, I would totally do that if I were trying to build a uh, product that nobody wanted. Right. (laughs) Um, I think it'd be fantastic. I mean, I would totally do that if I was trying to build a buggy product as well. Here's the problem, right? is that uh, I want to create an environment where the dev team and product owner can work collaboratively together. Yeah. Because the problem is if the dev team view, views the product owner as like the boss or someone they're trying to make happy, the problem is that when a problem comes up, they, they don't tell the product owner, right? And as a product owner, the worst time for me to find out about a problem is late. Because yeah. later we find out about problems, our options to address it are lesser and fewer. The sooner we find out about a problem, our options to address it are more and greater. And so what we need to have is an environment where the uh, the dev team, Scrum Master, and Product Owner are really creating a, a, a safe environment where they can be open and candid with each other so that we can quickly um, uh, bring up problems and not have those, uh, you know, kind of those finger-pointing overreactions to bring up problems and really understand that problems are going to come, you know, and identify that we want to be able to address them early and resolve them early. I mean, it really gets into, you and I talked a bit uh, beforehand, but a lot of, you know, if you're going to do something like a lean startup or even design thinking, you got to have that mindset from the get-go. Yeah. So I, so let's, before, I've got a whole bunch of things I want to say and respond to what you just, response to what you just brought up, but what, let's talk really quickly about the session you're going to do in Austin. So you're sure. at the Scrum Gathering, which is taking place in Austin, Texas from May 19th to the 22nd. Um, you're going to be giving a talk at 2.15, I think, on Wednesday the 22nd. I think actually it is a two yeah, two forty five. Sorry, two forty five. Right, two forty five to three thirty. Yeah, and it's in room E, and it's called the perfect product owner. So, what's the basic gist of this session? So, um, what we're going to talk about here is what to look for in a product owner. So, uh, there are essentially five key attributes I look for in a product owner. Uh, the five are uh, the bandwidth to be a product owner, 
the power to uh, make decisions and prioritize and accept work, the knowledge of the product, uh, interest in wanting to become a product owner, and the vision to uh, bring the product forward, right? So there's a five moments I look for. What we'll talk about there is I'll start off with a kind of a story about um, a, a product owner I had who was an executive and a kind of how that executive played into those five dimensions. From there, I'm actually, I created a, um, a template, a persona template for product owners that kind of ranks them along those five dimensions. So uh, the, the, the template is just an open source. So I'll hand the template out to the students. They can play with that. Then what we'll do is we will do an interactive piece where they uh, map out what a product owner does every day. And we'll talk about basically as a product owner, how you split your time between kind of outward facing with uh, stakeholders, end users, customers, your leadership, inward facing with your dev team, um, and then also that refinement aspect of it and how that all has to balance into a cohesive whole. So we'll talk about that. And then we'll end up with uh, talking about a lot of the patterns and anti-patterns uh, similar to what we had just discussed. Okay. So now I have a whole bunch of things that I want to check in with you on since you're going to be going through all this stuff in the, in the session. Um, and sure. after you, first of all, after you um, do the session, once you make that, that persona template available publicly, if, you, if you're okay with it, I'd like to link up to it in the show notes for the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Um, I always tell my students two things about the PO role. One is that this is the hardest, scariest job on the scrum team because you're constantly having to make decisions, you're held accountable for the results, and you will never have enough information to make good decisions. Do you subscribe to that, or do you differ with it? Yeah, I think that the first part you said is definitely very true, right? It's, in fact, there's a, there's a term we used to use. We've kind of gone away from using it. I don't really talk about it in class other than potentially in passing if someone else brings it up. But if you remember, we used to call this role the single ringable neck. Remember that from back yep. in the day? Yep. Um, and it was kind of like a the buck stops here type role. Uh, and so I agree, it, it's very challenging. In fact, when you look at just the day-to-day job of product owner, it, it requires a lot of work because conceptually, in theory, you have to uh, understand the, you have to not understand, you have to kind of align and, and, and really define and own that product vision and that roadmap, right? You have to gather all the needs, do all the prioritization, write all the product backlog items, Right. It, uh, answer all the questions from your end users, customers, stakeholders, uh, provide all that insight to the team, answer all their questions and validate all the work. Right. That in theory is your job. Yeah. Right. And that is a lot. Yeah. It's a lot for one person to do, especially if they're saddled with three other projects and a whole other section of job responsibilities. Well, that's part. So that we talk about that in my session is that if that's the case, your bandwidth score would be really low. And if that's the case, you have to do one of two things to fix your bandwidth with score, right? Your bandwidth being you have the time to do the product owner job. Yeah. There's only one of two things. There's only one of two ways to to, um, to fix that. One way is that uh, your leadership offloads or you offload other parts of your job to someone else. Okay. That's one way. Or you have to replace yourself as product owner. Right. Okay. And we'll talk through both those options in my session. Because the bandwidth is so um, is uh, so demanding, oftentimes, and I don't think this is necessarily a bad thing. I know a lot of agilists don't love it, but oftentimes we'll see uh, this uh, uh, analyst type act as a support system for a product owner. I think that's fine. I think having uh, having folks like analysts help uh, answer some questions, help track down some work, help do some of the validation as a support system, I think is fine. As long as the product owner isn't too abstracted away from the dev team or the stakeholders. 
Okay. Yeah, I always tell people that if you're going to have a BA come in and, and do part of your job, that you have to make sure that what's in their head is what you what you support. Because and you still have to be hands-on on the ground, too. Okay. I mean, you can't be like an ivory tower type product owner. Yeah. So what about um, the idea of them never having enough information to make good decisions? Do you find that that... I mean, because they're having to make these choices so far in advance, and and they're not going to see the impact, right? All the lagging indicators don't show up until after the thing's out in the marketplace. Um, do, is, do you agree with that, or is that not so much an I, issue for you? I well, I would agree that that is a danger. Okay, I think that is a very valid danger, and so understand that that's a risk. How do we address that, right? So there are great concepts out there, like lean startup, that really focus on trying to get that 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 MVP out there just as quickly as possible. Build out your assumptions, right? Figure out what you believe the product to be, what you believe is to be true. Uh, identify what is the leanest path I can take to test these assumptions. Quickly test them. Uh, get the data and identify based on data. Uh, am I on the right path, or do I need to pivot into different directions? I think there is that. I think also having uh, an understanding of what kind of data to even look for, right? Creating really um, um, uh, KPIs, metrics, uh, OKRs that really align with what I need to know as a product owner, as opposed to like some nonsense we've seen in the past, you know, talking about velocity or story points or number of features, um, or even back in the old days, lines of code, that stuff is just silly nonsense. Well, I, I don't, I think that there's some value in those things, but you have to know why you're looking at them. I think as a product owner trying to kind of uh, get feedback on the product, it's nonsensical. I think in terms of building it out, in terms of pacing ourselves and capacity, yeah. I think there could be some arguments made for that. But I'm talking purely in terms of product ownership, understanding my product decisions. I think okay. the only thing that brings up, I think, is in terms of like um, uh, cost, size, and effort, right? Because I do have to take, kind of take in a cost to value ratio. Yeah. So I think to that extent, it, it factors a bit in, but I think using like velocity as a primary uh, indicator of achieved value is silly. Oh yeah, that's unsound. I, I agree. Um, so you brought up design thinking and lean startup. I'm wondering, um, the role of product owner encompasses a lot more than what's covered in the Scrum Guide. So I would I agree with you that design thinking and lean startup, those are things I would expect anybody who's going to be good at this job to be like familiar with more than just a high cursory level. I expect that they've studied them a little bit, that they understand how they work and, and have some level of comfort in using these tools and techniques. Are there other things that you think someone should be come familiar with or schooled in if they're going to play a product in a role and actually be successful at it? Well, I think, uh, so short answer is yes. Um, I think they definitely need to be very smart about their product. One of the things we talk about in class is, um, in a certified Scrum Product Owner course, is should the product owner come from the technical side or the product side? And we definitely want them to come from as close to the product as possible, right? We really need to understand, uh, have a deep understanding of what the value of the product should be, who our users are, how they want to use a product, what they would find value, how we can get, how we, the organization, get value out of this product. They should have a lot of depth in that area. So that's the get-go. And that's one of the dimensions we rank in the, those five dimensions I talked about is knowledge. It's knowledge on the product itself. Um, but with that said, the other thing I want to bring up here is, um, is you know, we do the, we have the training. So uh, I have a certified Scrum product on our course, uh, which is a great class. And the way I've, um, 
segmented out is my certified scrum product owner course, a CSPO. Uh, we focus on a real good, uh, based on understanding the product owner role, especially in, in the context of working with my scrum team, right? Okay. So a lot of the discovery and validation part of it, we touch upon a little bit lighter and we focus heavily on uh, working with the scrum team. Okay. Right? The advanced certified Scrum product in our class, um, we focus more heavily on uh, working with the outside the Scrum team, and so we focus more heavily on um, on discovery and uh, validation. And okay. so in there, we'll get deeper into uh, design thinking, the concept of uh, understanding, empathizing with our customers, uh, exploring those ideas via uh, different uh, prototype or potential proof of concepts, and then using the results of that to implement. We'll talk about that. The thing that's interesting is as I say that out loud, right, inherently a lot of agilists will cringe at parts of that <laughs> because a lot of agilists uh, don't love the idea of uh, proof of concept or prototyping because it's it's vaporware, right? We want uh, slices of, of delivery. Um, and the way I marry that is I don't hate, I don't, I'm with the agilists. I think we definitely don't want design vaporware. So I don't love proof of concept, but I don't hate prototyping because I view prototyping as almost like visual requirements. Like they're, they're visual user stories in a way. Well, if the whole point, let's say it's scrum, the whole point of it is to get feedback. Even a prototype provides you with feedback. I agree. And I'm not, I'm like, I'm not such a big subscriber to that whole skateboard, bicycle, motorcycle, car thing. I think if I know I'm going to have a car in the end, give me a steering wheel. I can give you feedback on the steering wheel. At a high level, I agree. Right. But what we want to, I think the danger of what you just said there, though, is um, is a danger is that we start building out our products in uh, vertical layers instead of horizontal slices. Yeah. Uh, that's exactly why I don't want technical people as my product owners. And I really don't want technical people designing my organization because the danger I've seen is that, that if I have technical people design my organization, uh, what I've seen, like a CIO, CTO type, what I've seen is, okay, here's my data team. Here's my back-end team. Here's yeah. my middleware team. Here's my front-end team, right? Because that's how we build out products. I don't want my team structured that way, at least not from a, a product delivery standpoint. And at a micro level, if I have technical people as my product owners, the danger is that the first set of sprints is all back-end. Next set of sprints is all middleware. Next set of sprints is all front-end. And that's just architectural waterfall, right? All right. So hold so, on a second, though. So yeah. I think it could be that way. Um, but what I was, just to, to clarify the steering wheel thing, I'm thinking of that steering wheel as a vertical slice. I just can't, I, I'm, I'm not going to ship the steering wheel by itself. The yeah, problem there is that I'm locked into the car. But um, let's say that there is somebody who's technical and not super business savvy, because I do get a lot of those people in my classes. I get a lot of folks that come from the, the development side and they're the product owner of some new thing and all they know is tech. So... How would you coach somebody to like to get more towards your you know perfect product owner state um, if they're coming from a tech background? What can they do to to fill the gaps there? So if your organization, like let's say it's a commercial company with a marketing a sales type department, I would certainly get very intimate with them. I'll tell you a, a quick story. I was working with uh, one government client that um, they're actually a, a it was a new government agency and they just started out and so they actually. Um, had the advantage of really hiring the type of people they wanted to bring in through the very sharp technical people. So um, they were kind of just doing cowboy programming for a while, but eventually they wanted to kind of create more cohesion. So they brought in kind of a lot of agile scrum Kanban type concepts in. And so um, what happened there 
is they took they had these roles in place called technical project managers TPMs yep. that were came up from technology side and worked heavily with the uh, technology folks. They made all the TPMs product owners, right? And so here's what ended up happening there. They were building really cool things. They were building it really well, right? And technically, the things are really sound. Uh, the only thing was no one was asking for it, right? They were building things that no one wanted. No one wanted it that way. Right? Okay. So they were building things that didn't satisfy their consumer needs. Yeah, so they just That's, weren't in sync with what the end customer actually wanted. Because the product owner was too, the product owner was too inward facing, too abstracted away from the customer. Yeah. Because they're used to work with the dev team day to day. They were talking about, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we had this technology? Could you guys do? But they weren't uh, focused on satisfying or solving customer problems. Yeah. So when I did work with Skype, they would have a technical PO and a business PO paired together. How do you feel about that? Uh, I feel like it is – well, here's the problem. The first core value of Scrum, as we all know, is focus, Yeah. right? And the problem of having two product owners is potential fragmentation. Right? Yeah. And so I'm not sure why we're even calling it that. Like Scrum has a product owner, right? And so why do we have a technical product owner and a product product owner? What I would have is I would have a single voice of the product as uh, to kind of create that focus. You can have tech – I mean my dev team essentially is my tech technical – advising uh, vehicle, right? My dev team will advise a product owner on technical decisions, on technical direction. As a product owner, my job is to listen to them and follow their advice unless there's a business reason why I can't or, or choose not to. Okay. Right? Uh, but the problem is it's it's if I have um, two product owners, let's say they have conflicting uh, priorities, right? That creates fragmentation, which just creates more friction to the system. Okay. So I have uh, one more question for you before I start asking you about the Scrum Gathering itself. Sure. Um, one of the things that I will typically say about this role, and I don't know if you agree with it or not, but the, the PO, one of the PO's main jobs is just to disappoint people. I mean, you've got to tell nine people no so you can tell one person yes. And that's going to include saying no to a lot of people who are above your pay grade. Yeah. And a lot of people are not comfortable with conflict, aren't comfortable with saying no, and a lot of stakeholders aren't used to being told no. So when you get folks that you're working with in a PO role who are not deeply skilled in the no area, are there things that you recommend they do or study or read or practice to get more comfort there or more ease? So I think this is where having a really good Scrum Master coach comes in play. Because what I, I've, I've been in a situation a lot, especially in the government, especially my big clients, because yeah. there's such a hierarchy there, right? Um, and so what I do is I do like a lot of role-playing simulations with them to kind of walk through what these looks like. And I view it not so much as a no, but more about kind of an understanding of what you're, what you, what you're asking for and where that sits in the big picture, right? It's, um, it's, it's, it's not saying, hey, stakeholder, that's a no, but hey, stakeholder, what you're asking for, here's how we assess the value the value of doing it and negative impact of not doing it. Based on that and based where the product's going, there are a set of stuff here that just provides you know higher value or there are strategically uh, more reasons why we do these first. It's not that I don't want to do yours now, but I can't do everything at once. Okay. And based on our trajectory, here's where yours goes. Right. And it's possible every once in a while where like based on the vision and, and kind of roadmap for this product, what you're asking for doesn't natively align with this product. Now, when that happens, you can always revisit the vision and roadmap um, to see if we do want to kind of pivot on that. But those are conversations we, we definitely should have. And I think what's helpful, too, is um, one of the things I often see missing with uh, a lot of uh, products 
uh, the clients I work with is um, is kind of a very limited vision statement combined with uh, 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 a very limited or even non-existent roadmap. Yeah, I think having the vision roadmap is important because what I want to do so. One of the things with Scrum is we don't just kick off willy-nilly off based off a cocktail nap, a couple of cocktail napkins. We still want to sit down and at a high level ideate around the vision and roadmap and make sure we get alignment. Because once we have that, uh, that's my executive level coverage, right? Yeah. So as a product owner, as long as I'm aligned with the roadmap and product vision, I have complete control of the product. Now, if I need to deviate from the roadmap and vision, it's not that I can't. It's just that that probably should be a deeper conversation. I think that's really important too. I mean, I, I always tell folks that the most important thing to do after you leave class is make sure you have a vision statement because you need alignment with stakeholders on what the product's going to be. And you need backstory for the team who's going to be solving these problems as you go. Yeah. Um, cool. This was this has been really, really great. Um, and I appreciate you taking the time to do it. So you're going to be doing this talk at the Scrum Gathering in Room E on Wednesday, May 22nd at 2.45. Um, you and I have both been to the Scrum Gathering more than once because we're old. Um, what what suggestions do you have for folks that are going to be coming to it for the first time? Like, what tips can you offer folks so they get the most value out of it? Yeah, I think the Scrum Gathering is a uh, is a really nice conference because I, I, I tend to go to the Scrum Gathering and the Agile Conference. I think both are fantastic. Uh, one of the things I like about the Scrum Gathering is that it's a bit smaller than the Agile Conference. Um, and uh, your ratio of new learners to experts skews uh, heavier towards uh, those with more expertise and knowledge. So there's a lot of people that you can just kind of uh, get a lot of great information from. In fact, uh, at the Scrum uh, Gathering, they have a, a coach's corner that's manned and staffed by uh, expert uh, coaches. And you can set aside time to work through some of the issues you may be having in your environment. So I think that's a good resource. Okay. Uh, Two, there's an app you can download that kind of gives you all sessions, so you can kind of uh, uh, see what sessions are coming up and uh, put a place mark to uh, go to those sessions. Uh, three, it's it's very social. There's things going on uh, after afterwards where you can network and uh, meet a lot of folks and chat with them. I, I find that find that very enjoyable. Yeah, I think this is all great. I mean, I would say to people like definitely you want to take advantage of all the networking stuff, going through the program ahead of time and picking out two or three different options for each time slot because you'll find that like if you try to go to Weisbart and you're not there like really early, you're not going to get in. It's going to be sold out. So there's some folks where you're going to have to get there early. Other oh, ones where yeah, yeah. You, need, you need like a, a backup. Um, I think yeah. it's also good to take Wait, breaks let's, too. Let's, let's stop right there and reiterate that. So um, I think that's really good advice in that if there's a session you definitely want to get to, Get into that room early because sometimes, like Dave said, the rooms do fill up. Except for yours. <laughs> um, but take a break, too. I think it's easy to get caught up in this like fear of missing out thing. And if you don't give yourself recharge time, um, you're not going to get what you can out of it. But this is a smaller, more intimate setting. You can speak to pretty much anybody in the halls. I think when you go to the networking events, it's great to have a wingman or a person there who can you know, you can look out for each other. That's also very helpful. Not that anything bad happens, but it's just good. Sometimes people get a little bit swept up. Um, anything in particular that you're really looking forward to seeing other than Dan Pink? Yeah, well, that's very exciting. So yeah, it is Dan huge. Dan Pink there is, uh, is great. Um, well, from a kind of a personal standpoint, uh, Austin is a great city. 
Uh, I've been there once briefly in and out, then I was kind of sick, but um, I did enjoy the barbecue there. So when you go there, you have to get the barbecue. The beef brisket is what Austin's famous for. So uh, get that. And they've um, seen the bats come out from under the bridge. Oh, yeah, I heard about that. I didn't it's see that. very cool. I heard that's very cool. So I yeah. think that's going to be fun. Also, if you ever get confused or, or debating, just feel free to go up and ask somebody saying, hey, you know, I'm thinking about these next these three sessions. What do you think? Right. And the, and kind of uh, get people's thoughts and opinions on the sessions. Yeah. Folks are really, really um, open and willing to talk to pretty much anybody. And if you get lost, look for the purple shirt people because they'll be around everywhere. They're at the Agile Conference and at the Scrum Gathering, um, helping you find your way to get to everything. So, yeah, this was awesome, dude. Thanks a lot for taking the time out for this. And people should come and see your talk. Yep. Right? Yeah, and, uh, it's uh, 245. Yeah, on Wednesday. Wednesday. Cool. All right, dude, thanks a lot. Appreciate you being here, and I'll see you in Austin. Thanks for having me. This has been cool. fun. Thank you. Mm-hmm.